are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, I am sitting at the Lillian E. Smith Center in the common room with Aaron McMullen, who is the Emily Pierce Graduate Student Residency Award winner for 2023. She is currently working on her MFA at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville, and she was a Fulbrighter to India a few years back. She is from Missouri, and she is actually showing me a couple of quilt pieces that she is doing for MFA project, which we'll talk about. But we're going to talk about kind of her experiences here at the center so far, getting the award, how the Fulbright in India kind of connected, I would say, even her with Lillian Smith, even though she didn't know about Lillian Smith, and then how she learned about Lillian. So welcome, Erin. It's good to have you. Thank you. It's good to be here. So you are working on your MFA. I am. And I mentioned that you went to India. So there's a couple of places, I guess, to start. First of all, can you tell us about the project you're doing for your MFA? I think that'll lead us elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so the project I'm working on, I'm working on two bodies of work, but while I'm here, I'm working on what's uh, what I've called the Legacy Quilt Project. So one of the things that I have been really trying to do in my exploration of kind of this intersection of activism and artwork is look at history. Um, and present the whole picture, right? So I think that a lot of times white people, when we think about the history of race in the United States, there's a lot of shame and guilt and um, dissociation that happens. What I want to do with this project of the Legacy Quilt is highlight the lives of women who, from history, like Lillian Smith, who actively, courageously opposed slavery, racism, um, and give people today sort of a foundation of hope um, to remind us all that this work that we are engaged in is continuing legacies of women who came before us. So there's a couple of things you mentioned there. You're talking about the history of white women involved in anti-racist or social justice work, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, that has a long tradition. You, One of the pieces that I'm looking at here is actually Lydia Maria Child, who, of course, was an abolitionist, anti-slavery writer, activist during the early, mid-1800s, even leading after the Civil War. And then you have a piece with Lillian Smith, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this long history kind of in between there that is people that I don't know. You know, I mentioned when we were talking a second ago about Joan Browning, who I didn't know, but I interviewed her for the LES podcast, and she was one of the last Freedom Riders. She went from Atlanta to Augusta, right? And she was actually, or Atlanta to Albany, maybe. I don't remember. Yeah, I think it was Atlanta to Albany. And then she was telling me about her kind of getting kicked out of college for going to school with the black girl, or going to church with the black girl who invited her. And then what she had to do, her working with SNCC, her having black people at her house, and then getting the GBI on her, all of this type of stuff in the 60s, right? Yeah. And there's two things you kind of said within that, that the activist, you're marrying the activist and the artist part of you, which I want to talk about too, but the other key thing you said there was the history part. Mm -hmm. 
And history is important because one of the things I think about as the director of the center is, you know, I kind of knew Lillian a little bit, didn't know really anything about her, had strange fruit on my shelf before I got this job, but then getting this job, learning about her. So I didn't learn about her, you know, extensively until I was like 40. Mm -hmm. So what does that kind of do for you? And you mentioned you didn't know about Lillian Smith until probably about a year or two ago. Right. With your with your MFA advisor or director, I don't remember what mm-hmm. you said, but what would that history have done if we knew about people like Lillian or even Child? I mean, mm-hmm. that's a little bit different, I think, but right. more contemporary people within the civil rights movement, if we knew about them as white people growing up. I don't know if you consider yourself Southern from Missouri, but I'm from Louisiana, so I consider myself Southern. Yeah, I would say I'm a Midwestern. Yeah, but... But even even that, I mean, Child's Northeast. I mean, yeah. she's Massachusetts. Or Massachusetts well, and, I think. and St. Louis has such a, you know, as the Southern Missouri, the Midwest being right at that point of the North and the South, and um, yeah, there's a rich history of of that conflict there as well. So, have you? I guess that's I'm trying to figure out the way to phrase the question is. Mm-hmm. What do you think that would have done for you if you learned about these women or women like them in your formative years? I Say mean, middle or high school or even earlier. I think I would be a much more bolder activist today than, than I am. Um, when I, I, I haven't even known about Lillian Smith for a year. You know, I, I, I found out about her last fall, so it's so almost a year. Can you tell us about how you found out about her? Yeah, so my um, thesis advisor, um, Ivy Cooper, she gave me a copy of Killers of the Dream. I had been talking about how I'm looking for examples of white women from history who are inspiring, who, who've done this work. Um, and I had never heard of Lillian Smith um, and I watched uh, the documentary Breaking the Silence and immediately felt an affinity, um, especially like we mentioned earlier, the artist and activist um, intersection or, or dual identity. I mean, even um, that she had that tension strongly within herself. Right, right. And so there's one point in the documentary when someone says, you know, she didn't feel complete with only one or the other. And I felt like, oh, that's me. Yeah, I, I understand that feeling so well. Um, but yeah, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't heard of her before. I think that had I known about these women, had that been a central part of my formative education, um, the fear, the feeling of isolation, the feeling of risk in standing up for what's right, I feel would be uh, not so overpowering. Um, I think knowing that I'm standing on the shoulders of strong women who risked way more than I will ever have to risk because things have changed so drastically um, really lights a fire under me, you know. So you mentioned this intersection of art to an activism. And this kind of gets into kind of a broader discussion. I want to get back to the history thing in a second, but mm-hmm. what is the role of art? And that's a very subjective question, right? Yeah. So how do you see the role of art within kind of society or within you as an artist? Yeah. So 
and this will kind of like tie a little bit to my experience in India um, when I had the Fulbright there. That was the the year after, or two years after I'd finished my undergrad. Um, and I, the whole time I was there was really thinking like, where do I want to go? What do I want to do with my life? You know, what path do I want to do? like pursue my PhD in anthropology, you know, and, um, I didn't really have an answer. Everything felt too narrow. I didn't want to just be stuck in academia. I felt because what I was doing there was looking at, um, the circumstances in which cotton farmers are, um, growing and producing cotton and, why there's a high suicide rate among them. And as a consumer and wearer of cotton who had never heard of this before, what I wanted my work to do was connect consumers to the story. And I felt like if I was getting my PhD somewhere, that that would be a very limited audience. It wouldn't be reaching, you know, the average wearer of cotton. Um, So I was really kind of struggling with, you know, how do I do this? How do I how do I carry this message in a broader and more meaningful way? And, you know, I thought about maybe journalism or whatever, but I've, I've landed on art for two reasons. Number one, um, that's where I feel the most inspired and I can continue my work in that way. Um, but number two, when people interact with art, they're experiencing something on a somatic level, um, a subconscious level. You stand in front of a piece of artwork and sure your mind is, is, is conjuring up memories and different ideas and, um, but also your body is doing that. And, and there's something that happens that is more um, permanent, I think than just hearing something on NPR or reading a a headline. Um, So for that reason, I've kind of, I feel like it can reach a broad audience in a, in a meaningful way. So what you're saying is art is not a solitary experience. Mm -mm. It is a communicative communal experience. Yes. Because we bring everything that we have to that art. And even if the artist is not there, and you're talking about visual art here, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we can say the same thing about literature or any book or anything like that. But we bring whatever we bring to it. And even though the writer or the artist isn't there, that person is communicating with us. Absolutely. So it is a communication between artist, us, the people we know, the things we know, the things the artist know. It's, it's broad. Yeah. Even though it is a solitary kind of act. That brings me a little bit back to history, too, because mm-hmm. history, I think, kind of serves in the same way. How history is an important thing right now, mm-hmm. you know, especially within our society. I've asked you how it may have affected you if you knew about these women before during your formative years. What do you think is the importance of knowing, like you said, you don't know Lillian Smith much. You just heard about her the past year. But what do you think the importance at this moment Mm -hmm. of students, not just students, 
but the public in general, learning about people like her, about Polly Murray, about Virginia Durr, about Joan Browning, about Dorothy Tillerson. Mm-hmm. And then those are just 19, 20th century people, or Lydia Maria Child, Catherine Maria Cedric, Lucretia Mott, yeah. you know, yeah. um, Sojourner Truth. The list can go on and on and on. We're not even talking about Sojourner Truth as African American. We're not even talking about Audre Lorde and Bell. I mean, yeah. what's the importance of knowing about women activists? Or just, in our context, we're talking about here, white activists, male or female, mm-hmm. or non-binary or whatever. Mm-hmm. What would that do at an early <clears throat> educational stage? Well, I Why is it important? I don't know necessarily about an early educational stage. But when, I, when I say that, I mean P-12. So I mean preschool through like senior high school. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yeah, no, no problem. So, I mean, one of the reasons why... An aspect of the legacy quilt that I haven't talked about yet is that it. my intention for it is to be a collaborative project. So m- these are, you know, two pieces that I would contribute, but my hope is that um, I'll be able to engage the public in working on it as well. Um, and a big part of that is because, like you said, you know, we don't know these stories. These stories have been excluded from history for very particular reasons um these were women who were going against the grain of society and so their stories were excluded from mainstream history and and that was one of Lillian's tensions too because she said that people are erasing me right yes yeah yeah and so in my experience in doing anti-racism work um I have not really learned about these women And I think a common, I think I mentioned this earlier, but a common experience that white people who are beginning to understand that they have privilege and to look at their whiteness is to feel a great sense of shame. I think if you introduce white activism, anti-racism, using the stories of women who've come before us, there is less of a, a... danger of falling into that trap of shame and more of a possibility of finding a footing to continue the work. So when you have the narrative that, and I'm thinking of the civil rights movement specifically, mm-hmm. and even current movements, that it's outside agitators who were coming in, and the civil rights movement, it's outside agitators in the North, mm-hmm. especially if it's talking about white activists, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, James Reeb, Viola Lizzo, and other people who are coming down, you know, and and stirring things up. Mm -hmm. Yet you have people, like I said, Dorothy Tillis, who I don't know much about, but she was an anti-lynching activist with a church group in Atlanta, right? Mm -hmm. You have Lillian Smith. You have Virginia Durr, who her and her husband helped, you know, get Rosa Parks out of jail when she was arrested. There's a good documentary from... um, Oh, what's his name? Andrew Beck Grace about her. You can just look... You can look it up online. Mm -hmm. But... Though they were Southerners, yeah. they were here. They yeah. were not somebody from out of the area, right? They right. intimately knew this space. So there's a couple of things you said about the fact of one of the things when you start thinking about these things is you feel a guilt of shame. I don't know if I ever felt shame. Hmm. I'm trying to think back, and I don't know. Um, but my focus was African American lit and in college and my PhD maybe that's why I'm Mm -hmm. not sure but one of the things I think about is is that shame of you looking at yourself 
because yeah. that's one of the things I get from Lillian Smith is <clears throat> you have to look at yourself because that's what she does. Yeah. And she looks in the mirror and you're scared about what you're going to see. So do you want to confront it? Yeah. But I think the other key point you're saying there is part of the way to get rid of that shame because it's not about shame is knowing there is a history there that you can stand on yeah instead of saying people are from outside of this area you can say oh there's somebody from right down the road that did this right yet i didn't know about it till now and why not and that erasure like you said is purposeful right well and i think that you know as as i began my exploration of my own um complicity in racism as just an ignorant naive white person who hadn't really like thought about whiteness as part of my identity and a privilege that I was able to kind of float on in society um because I don't know a lot about my own ancestry the the fear of what if you know my great great grandfather was a slave owner or you know this this unknown and i think that most of what we learn about history in terms of race and slavery in the united states is white people were bad and what we don't hear is the story that as long as there has been oppression marginalization there have been white people who have been opposed to that right i mean I'm thinking about my own family. I try and I have those questions too, and I know that my son <clears throat> just went to go find graves of ancestors. I wasn't on that trip, but you know, I think great great grandfather was CSA, right? Was Confederate, you know, States of America was soldier, and that was his grave. I'm like, okay, did they own anything? I don't know, and I haven't been able to find that out. Mm-hmm. So then, what happens when you do find that out? I mean, that's a whole nother situation too, and that is a question to actually ask. Right. I've tried to do some research, but I can't find anything. Right. You know, at this point. But it's that same discussion, of course, that colleges have been having, universities have been having. I think Georgetown's one of the big ones, right? Mm-hmm. That they were basically saved because they sold some enslaved individuals, right? Yeah. So those kind of legacies, you know, we have to deal with them. And right. other places like Germany have dealt with their histories, but right. we haven't. Right. And there's specific reasons why we haven't. Right. But no, it shouldn't make us feel shame. Like I said, it should make us think about where do we go and how do we rectify what has happened. Exactly. Because just two more things. You know, one of the things that I learned with teaching, I've taught books about Japanese internment. Mm -hmm. So individuals who were interred during Japanese internment during World War II have received reparations, right? Mm -hmm. And their reparations is, oh, scary work. But Mm -hmm. they received reparations. Um, Holocaust survivors in Germany receive payments and reparations, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the individuals who were held hostage in Iran in the late 1970s, a couple years ago, received like over a million dollars in reparations apiece. Yeah. So those are just 20th century examples, two from the U.S. and others from, one from Germany. And actually the Japanese internment reparations was Reagan. Mm-hmm. So in the 80s. So... How do you rectify kind of that past to make things more equitable? And then you have decisions, of course, that we've been getting the affirmative action decision that just came down today right. and all of that stuff. Right. So th- this, that takes us into a whole different kind of thing. But those are yeah. the things you have to wrestle with and deal with. Exactly. And unless you're 
ready to face yourself, you're not going to want to deal with them. They'll just push back. Well, and I think that that like ties directly to the dissent that we were reading earlier, that just because we've decided that we want colleges to be colorblind doesn't mean that the experience of race in the United States no longer exists, you know? And so I think it ties into this idea that, you know, we have to confront our past. We have to. uh, And the, the question of why is it harder for us to think about reparations for slavery than for Japanese internment or, I mean, I think that what it comes down to is the like deeply embedded psychological um, evolution really of, and, and the shame, you know, because to confront our history of slavery. Not just our individual history, right, our collective history. Our collective history. history it requires us to admit that we were inhumane. It requires us to look at what pieces of our own humanity were lost and have been lost and buried over time. And that's a really difficult thing to do. Well, thinking about that history, like I said, it's not just individual. Ivy League's benefited from it, Mm -hmm. right? We know that. I think the University of Chicago, other places like that, benefited from it. So it's not just even a southern thing. Oh no! Which I the, mean, the, our that's railroad the, systems, right. our government buildings, that's, everything. That's the whole other kind of part of that discussion: is the South getting blamed for yeah. the nation's sins, which is not the case, right? Right. I mean, William Smith points that out. I think in Killers of the Dream or somewhere, and she's like talking to a camper about, you know, Reconstruction and everything. And she's yeah. like, the North is just a complicit. They just won the war, right? So they can say that we are good because we ended slavery, right? Right. But she makes a point to say that. I'm like, that's right. I mean, Du Bois says that. I think back to David Walker. David Walker's appeal was 1829, and his appeal partly led to kind of a lot of laws against free people of color in the South um, and, you know, kind of anti-literacy laws, too, a lot of different things. But one of the things he says is, you know, this soil, this is a paraphrase, that the soil is, you know, built on the backs of enslaved and black individuals and that their tears, you know, nourish the nourish the roots, basically. And that's 1829. Mm-hmm. And he's not wrong, right? right? So how do you... And Lillian Smith says the same thing. My favorite quote from her is from an essay, The White Christian and His Conscience from 1943. And she begins that essay by saying... Ever since the first white Christian enslaved the first black man, the conscience of America has been hurting. Yeah. And you can't really argue against right. that. So, so how do you, how do you, this has gone into a whole different discussion, but yeah. you, how do you rectify that history? Because you had 200, 250 years of enslavement, even before, I would say, in the Americas. Yeah. and. The U.S. is not the only country. We got to keep that in mind too. Right, right. Brazil didn't ban slavery till the late 1800s, and they had more enslaved people come there, right? Mm-hmm. But anyways, so how do you rectify 250 plus years of enslavement, then the Civil War, where you had some kind of you know progress through Reconstruction, mm-hmm. and then you have the backlash, and then Jim Crow up and through 65, yeah. and you have King's assassination in 68. Yeah. 
And then you have the war on drugs and you have all this other stuff that comes in, right? Yeah. So how do you rectify it? And the last thing is think about the fact that the Civil War is not that many generations ago. Like I said, my great, great, I think, grandfather. So that's one, two, five. I'm the fifth generation from the Civil War, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They were interviewing enslaved people for the WPA in the 30s. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so one of the ways that the Legacy Quilt Project came to be was um, two falls ago, I went down to Montgomery and I went to... Um, AGI, mm-hmm, the lynching yeah, memorial. The lynching memorial and um, the Legacy Museum. Mm-hmm. And at I want to take students back there. Yeah, I mean, it was a powerful, powerful experience. We need, to, we need to talk about Montgomery and kind of that setup too, but go ahead. So... At the um, memorial, there is a point where you can't read the inscriptions on the, you know, the heavy, the big metal blocks. Because you're looking up at them. You're looking up at them. And what they've done is they have these plaques that are eye level that talk about specific Mm -hmm. instances that they know of. And I, I, I can't say I was shocked, but I was appalled at how many of them were connected specifically to white women and protecting white women or white women feeling uncomfortable because of some benign thing that a young black man had done. The the main one I remember that you're talking about there is a guy walked by a window and yeah. the woman was bathing. Yeah. Right? That was it. Right. Right. Not that he looked or anything, just well, that... And the Tulsa, the Tulsa riots started right. because I a forgot black his name, Dickie something was in an elevator or tried to get into an elevator with a white woman, okay. you know. And so um, that was the excuse to burn down Black Wall Street. All of Black Wall Street, yeah. So I, I felt like, gosh, as a white woman, like I need to explore this history, and especially because. I have always kind of thought, oh, racism, slavery, that's like white men in the South, you know, and had not really ever considered how the role, the active role that white women played. Um, have you read the three ghost chapters in Killers of the Dream? I'm in, I'm in the middle of it okay. right now. Yeah. Because um, that's and all about that. Exactly. Exactly. And so, and then at the, at the Legacy Museum, one of the things that stood out to me the most was the role that the North played. You know, all of these banks were in the North. Mm-hmm. Many of the ports that slaves were being J.P. Morgan into. Chase, I think, has mo- got most of their money through the slave trade. Exactly. And so... And we bank with Chase. And you can't... And, and also, like, I... One of the women I was learning about for the Quilt Project, I can't remember her name right now, but her husband was... Uh, had some kind of legal position in Boston and he was mandated to um, uphold the Fugitive Slave Act while his wife was harboring (laughs) fugitive slaves in their home. Um, But that's a perfect example of how the North played a role in this. You know, the Fugitive Slave Act did not, it was not just a Southern thing. Yeah, look at, I mean, look at Solomon Northup if you've ever seen the, the movie or read, you know, his narrative, right. and this was before the Fugitive Slave Act. Right. But he was a free person of color in New York, and 
he got tricked basically by some white guys and got sold into slavery. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So even think about those types of things. And like you're talking about the white woman's complicity. One of my favorite quotes, and this is Rose Gladney in the documentary kind of talking about the role of the white woman. She says basically there's no there's n- no more deranged individual than the white woman on the pedestal, basically. Yeah. And of course that's what Lillian Smith talks about in Three Ghosts is one of the things, what she really drives at there is white men going and raping black women. And then in order to offset that, having this idea of white women as pure and virginal and chaste. Mm-hmm. So putting the stereotypes of hypersexualized availability on the black woman and then the pure and chaste on the white woman does something to the psyche of the white woman, mm-hmm. does something to the psyche of the white man. The black, yeah. All that's intermixed, right? Right. So what does that actually do? And then, of course, white women's role, because we know about the United Daughters of the Confederacy mm-hmm. and the work that they did, right. which helps with the erasure of history, right. which brings me back to Montgomery. Mm-hmm. So when I went to Montgomery, I taught at Auburn for two years. And when the EJI opened, I, I took students. It opened right, right before I did my Fulbright in Norway. <clears throat> but we've been to Montgomery before, and we went to Dexter Avenue, which, of course, is where you know King... Um, preached and where he was minister and Dexter Avenue is within eyeshot of the state capitol mm-hmm. you know where George Wallace basically stood and said segregation today segregation forever and whatever the hell else he said mm-hmm. what kind of struck me is there's a historical marker to Dexter Avenue and King, right mm-hmm. directly across the street you can go on google maps and see this directly across the street there is a United Daughters of the Confederacy marker and I don't know when it was put up that basically says this is the inaugural route that Jefferson Davis took when he accepted the when he was sworn in as president of the United States of the Confederacy or the Confederate States of America. Sorry. Yeah. So you have this like juxtaposition, and it's all over Montgomery, mm-hmm. like where the slave markets were. I think is where is near where the Rosa Parks Museum is now. Mm-hmm. The White House, of the Confederacy, is still there. Yeah. There's a reason that EJI was was put there, or why they're based out of there, right? There's yeah. a reason that museum is there. Right. It's this juxtaposition of these historical narratives that are getting told. Right. And history is, even though it's probably not the best thing to say it, it is a battlefield. Right. So the history that gets told, and again, it gets back to what would we have done if we knew about Lillian Smith? Mm -hmm. How far along on the journey would any of us have been if we knew about her or women like her before certain points in our life? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that this duality of history and I think especially like you referenced the United Daughters of the Confederacy. I mean, they were formed to retell and re you know, recontextualize the history of the Civil War. So it's states' rights. It has nothing to do with slavery. Right. And and that's not you know that's intentional that there's they had had educational things that said we're going to put in school books that don't agree with what we say basically we're going to stamp them unjust to the south yeah yeah and they determine what curriculum went into the classroom and it's important to note too that they are still active Mm -hmm. when i was in montgomery i i drove through selma on my way back up to memphis and um I went to see a couple of Confederate monuments. They were in the cemetery there. I learned through, I can't remember, I think it was through an NPR podcast, um, 
that when the first black mayor of Selma was elected, that was when these memorials were erected and they were put in public places. Are you talking about white lies, I think? Yeah, 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 yeah. And Andrew Bett Grace was part of that. <clears throat> yeah. He's one of the hosts, sorry. So, so I was listening to that and um, went to see, because later they were, the city council, I guess, voted to move them to the cemetery. So they were still allowed to be up, but they weren't as prominent in public places. So I went to the cemetery to see them, and there's a sign there that says, you know, that talks about how proud the United Daughters of the Confederacy are that they raised all of this money, that they were the ones responsible for erecting these. Even there was a, um, somebody stole one of them, and they pay, they paid to have it remade and replaced. And they, and they had their phone number and address where, they, where you could send donations. You know, I mean, there's there's no shame there. They're they're proudly still well, it's a promoting so, this history. It's also framed as a social club, right? Right. I mean, I would suggest read Karen Cox's uh, Dixie's Daughters, I believe, about the United Daughters of the Confederacy. But I keep thinking too. I mean, even around here, there are Confederate monuments here. You know, in this area, mm-hmm. and there's a cemetery. I know that I drive by all the time, and you see actually freshly fresh. Confederate battle flags on graves, yeah. right? And there's an obelisk and all this other stuff. Yeah. So people are actually, you know, putting these things on the graves to memorialize. And then what kind of legacy does that kind of teach, right? Right. I mean, we got to remember, too, talking about history, people say that the battle flag is part of my heritage. But when did the battle flag really come back in? Mm-hmm. It was Brown v. Board. Right. If you look at Georgia, Georgia added the battle flag into their state flag design around the Brown v. Board decision. Right. So there's an there's a reason why that flag is connected in the ways it is, and then the narrative gets shifted to its heritage, right? Mm-hmm. So knowing these types of things is important. And well, and the the shift to it's our heritage was so deeply ingrained and a part of what the United Daughters of the Confederacy right. offered, you know. And so it is a group of women that I feel are most responsible for this narrative, you know, coming up and being being a part of the Southern psyche. Right, and this is what Lillian is up against, right? Right. Not just her, but the other people who are, of course, involved with her. Mm-hmm. So you've been reading Lillian Smith. Is there anything that you kind of want to say that stands out to you before we close up? Well, specifically being here, um, you know. Yeah, let, yeah, let me ask about that. What does this space and then learning about her in this space and then working in this space? Yeah. What is that like and why? Well, let me ask you that and then I'll finish up the yeah. other question. So, this is like an understatement, but creating this artwork about the history of, that, of white women upholding slavery and racism has been quite difficult. There have been a lot of white people who have been uncomfortable with the work that I've made and who feel like this isn't really my story to tell um, as a white person. And I've weathered through it. I'm still doing it. And, but it's been hard. It's really taken a toll on my mental health and all kinds of other things. 
And so the first night I was here, I just felt this profound sense of gratitude and also hope, you know, thinking that I don't think that Lillian Smith could have maybe imagined that this place would still exist and be a haven for someone like me who's trying to figure out how to do this work in, you know, in 2023, not from the South, you know, using visual art. There, there's something there that, number one, I felt like an, an incredible gratitude to her and her legacy. And I felt a strength in, you know, imagining like what what my own legacy might be and who multiple generations from now may be looking at this quilt and feeling a sense of gratitude and um fortification in their own journey yeah so why would you recommend you kind of talked about it there but why would you recommend somebody apply for a residency or apply for a residency award to the LES center Mm -hmm. i mean what what would your elevator pitch be (laughs) i would start with that and then just being in this environment um the solitude of the woods but also you know Especially as, as I've been reading Killers of the Dream here, you know, you talked about when she has this conversation with the camper, um, thinking about all of the, all of the people that have come through here and the influence that she's had on so many different people, it, it removes a sense of isolation from the work. I feel a sense of community and even just being here and meeting the folks that are actively involved in this space now. Um, feeling like I have joined a a community of people who are like-minded, who are willing to risk things in the ways that I am. And that's something that you don't come across all the time. That makes perfect sense. I was in the library. It actually served as the camp library for a little bit. I was in there earlier looking around. And every time I go in there, I'm overwhelmed by the books. I always find a new book. But sitting in there thinking about the conversations that went on here. Who was here? Yeah. I mean, I know some of the people who were up here. And there were big-name people. That, what we consider big-name people up here? Yeah. Some people, I think, may have been up here. But I don't know, right? right? So it's just what actually occurred up here a mile outside of Clayton. Mm-hmm. Right? And you can hear the traffic going by. Mm-hmm. So thank you for joining us today, Aaron. I want to conclude by saying... If you are interested in supporting or would like to help and support the LES Center and the residency awards like the Emily Pierce Graduate Student Residency Award or just any of our ongoing projects or programs here, you can do that at piedmont.edu backslash Lillian dash E dash Smith dash center backslash giving. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. 
You can learn more about Living at East Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.